0: section 62 of man and wife this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by anna simon man and wife by wilkie collins 16th scene chapter the 54th part 1 the manuscript 1 my confession to be put into my coffin and to be buried with me when i die this is the history of what i did in the time of my married life here known to no other mortal creature confessed to my creator alone is the truth at the great day of the resurrection we shall all rise again in our bodies as we have lived when i am called before the judgment seat i shall have this in my hand O oh, just and merciful judge thou knowest what i have suffered My trust is in Thee." 2. I am the eldest of a large family, born of pious parents. We belong to the Congregation of the Primitive Methodists. My sisters were all married before me. I remained for some years the only one at home. At the latter part of the time my mother's health failed, and I managed the house in her place. Our spiritual pastor, good Mr. Babchild, used often to dine with us on Sundays between the services. He approved of my management of the house, and in particular of my cooking. This was not pleasant to my mother, who felt the jealousy of my being, as it were, set over her in her place. My unhappiness at home began in this way. My mother's temper got worse as her health got worse. My father was much away from us, traveling for his business. I had to bear it all. About this time I began to think it would be well for me if I could marry as my sisters had done, and have good Mr. Babchild to dinner between the services, in a house of my own. In this frame of mind I made acquaintance with a young man who attended service at our chapel. His name was Joel Dethridge. He had a beautiful voice. When we sang hymns he sang off the same book with me. By trade he was a paper-hanger. We had much serious talk together. I walked with him on Sundays. He was a good ten years younger than I was, and, being only a journeyman, his worldly station was below mine. My mother found out the liking that had grown up between us. She told my father the next time he was at home. Also my married sisters and my brothers. They all joined together to stop things from going further between me and Joel Dethridge. I had a hard time of it. Mr. Babchild expressed himself as feeling much grieved at the turn things were taking. He introduced me into a sermon not by name, but I knew who it was meant for. Perhaps I might have given way if they had not done one thing. They made inquiries of my young man's enemies, and brought wicked stories of him to me behind his back. This, after we had sung off the same hymn-book, and walked together, had agreed one with the other on religious subjects, was too much to bear. I was of age to judge for myself. And I married Joel Dethridge." 3. My relations all turned their backs on me. Not one of them was present at my marriage. My brother Reuben, in particular, who led the rest, saying that they had done with me from that time forth. Mr. Babchild was much moved, shed tears, and said he would pray for me. I was married in London by a pastor who was a stranger, and we settled in London with fair prospects. I had a little fortune of my own, my share of some money left to us girls by our Aunt Hester, whom I was named after. It was three hundred pounds. Nearly one hundred of this I spent in buying furniture to fit up the little house we took to live in. The rest I gave to my husband to put into the bank against the time when he wanted it to set up in business for himself. For three months, more or less, we got on nicely, except in one particular. My husband never stirred in the matter of starting in business for himself. He was once or twice cross with me when I said it seemed a pity to be spending the money in the bank which might be afterward wanted, instead of earning more in business. Good Mr. Babchild, happening about this time to be in London, stayed over Sunday and came to dine with us between the services. He had tried to make my peace with my relations, but he had not succeeded. At my request he spoke to my husband about the necessity of exerting himself. My husband took it ill. I then saw him seriously out of temper for the first time. Good Mr. Babchild said no more. He appeared to be alarmed at what had happened, and he took his leave early. Shortly afterward my husband went out. I got tea ready for him, but he never came back. I got supper ready for him, but he never came back. It was past twelve at night before I saw him again. I was very much startled by the state he came home in. He didn't speak like himself or look like himself. He didn't seem to know me, wondered in his mind and fell all in a lump, like, on our bed. I ran out and fetched the doctor to him. The doctor pulled him up to the light and looked at him, smelled his breath, and dropped him down again on the bed, turned about and stared at me. "'What's the matter, sir?' I says. "'Do you mean to tell me you don't know?' says the doctor. "'No, sir,' says I. "'Why, what sort of a woman are you?' says he. "'Not to know a drunken man when you see him.' With that he went away, and left me standing by the bedside, all in a tremble from head to foot. This was how I first found out that I was the wife of a drunken man. 4. I've omitted to say anything about my husband's family. While we were keeping company together he told me he was an orphan, with an uncle and aunt in Canada, and an only brother settled in Scotland. Before we were married he gave me a letter from this brother. It was to say that he was sorry he was not able to come to England, and be present at my marriage, and to wish me joy and the rest of it. Good Mr. Babchild, to whom in my distress I wrote word privately of what had happened, wrote back in return, telling me to wait a little, and see whether my husband did it again. I had not long to wait. He was in liquor again the next day, and the next. Hearing this, Mr. Babchild instructed me to send him the letter from my husband's brother, he reminded me of some of the stories about my husband which i had refused to believe in the time before i was married and he said it might be well to make inquiries the end of the inquiries was this the brother at that very time was placed privately by his own request under a doctor's care to get broken of habits of drinking the craving for strong liquor the doctor wrote was in the family they would be sober sometimes for months together drinking nothing stronger than tea Then the fit would seize them, and they would drink, 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 for days together, like the mad and miserable wretches that they were. This was the husband I was married to, and I had offended all my relations and estranged them from me for his sake. Here was surely a sad prospect for a woman after only a few months of wedded life. In a year's time the money in the bank was gone, and my husband was out of employment. He always got work being a first-rate hand when he was sober, I had always lost it again when the drinking fit seized him. I was loath to leave our nice little house, and part with my pretty furniture, and I proposed to him to let me try for employment, by the day as cook, and so keep things going while he was looking out again for work. He was sober and penitent at the time, and he agreed to what I proposed, and, more than that, he took the total abstinence pledge, and promised to turn over a new leaf, matters, as I thought, began to look fairly again. We had nobody but our two selves to think of. I had borne no child and had no prospect of bearing one. Unlike most women, I thought this a mercy instead of a misfortune. In my situation, as I soon grew to know, my becoming a mother would only have proved to be an aggravation of my hard lot. The sort of employment I wanted was not to be got in a day. Good Mr. Babchard gave me a character, and our landlord, A worthy man, belonging, I am sorry to say, to the popish church, spoke for me to the steward of a club. Still, it took time to persuade people that I was the thorough good cook I claimed to be. Nigh on a fortnight had passed before I got the chance I had been looking out for. I went home in good spirits, for me, to report what had happened, and found the brokers in the house, carrying off the furniture which I bought with my own money, for sale by auction. I asked them how they dared touch it without my leave. They answered, civilly enough, I must own, that they were acting under my husband's orders, and they went on removing it before my own eyes, to the cart outside. I ran upstairs and found my husband on the landing. He was in liquor again. It is useless to say what passed between us. I shall only mention that this was the first occasion on which he lifted his fist and struck me. Five. Having a spirit of my own, I was resolved not to endure it. I ran out to the police court hard by. My money had not only bought the furniture, it had kept the house going as well, paying the taxes which the Queen and the Parliament asked for, among other things. I now went to the magistrate to see what the Queen and the Parliament, in return for the taxes, would do for me. "'Is your furniture settled on yourself?' he says, when I told him what had happened. I did not understand what he meant.' he turned to some person who was sitting on the bench with him. "'This is a hard case,' he says. "'Poor people in this condition of life don't even know what a marriage settlement means, and if they did, how many of them could afford to pay the lawyer's charges?' Upon that he turned to me. "'Yours is a common case,' he said. "'In the present state of the law I can do nothing for you.' It was impossible to believe that. Common or not, I put my case to him over again.' I've bought the furniture with my own money, sir, I says. It's mine, honestly, come by, with bill and receipt to prove it. They're taking it away from me by force to sell it against my will. Don't tell me that's the law. This is a Christian country, it can't be. My good creature, says he, you are a married woman. The law doesn't allow a married woman to call anything her own, unless she has previously, with a lawyer's help, "'Made a bargain to that effect with her husband before marrying him. "'You have made no bargain. "'Your husband has a right to sell your furniture if he likes. "'I am sorry for you. I can't hinder him.' "'I was obstinate about it. "'Please to answer me this, sir,' I says. "'I have been told by wiser heads than mine "'that we all pay our taxes to keep the Queen and the Parliament going, "'and that the Queen and the Parliament make laws to protect us in return. "'I have paid my taxes.' "'Why, if you please, is there no law to protect me in return?' "'I can't enter into that,' says he. "'I must take the law as I find it, and so must you. "'I see a mark there on the side of your face. "'Has your husband been beating you? "'If he has, summon him here. "'I can punish him for that.' "'How can you punish him, sir?' says I. "'I can fine him,' says he, "'or I can send him to prison.' "'As to the fine,' says I, He can pay that out of the money he gets by selling my furniture. As to the prison, while he's in it, what's to become of me, with my money spent by him and my possessions gone? And when he's out of it, what's to become of me again, with a husband whom I have been the means of punishing, and who comes home to his wife knowing it? It's bad enough as it is, sir, says I. There's more that's bruised in me than what shows in my face. I wish you good morning. 6. When I got back the furniture was gone and my husband was gone. There was nobody but the landlord in the empty house. He said all that could be said, kindly enough toward me, so far as I was concerned. When he was gone I locked my trunk and got away in a cab after dark and found a lodging to lay my head in. If ever there was a lonely, broken-hearted creature in the world, I was that creature that night. There was but one chance of earning my bed, to go through the employment offered me under a man-cook at a club and there was but one hope, the hope that I had lost sight of my husband forever. I went to my work, and prospered in it, and earned my first quarter's wages. But it's not good for a woman to be situated as I was, friendless and alone, with her things that she took a pride in sold away from her, and with nothing to look forward to in her life to come. I was regular in my attendance at chapel, but I think my heart began to get hardened, and my mind to be overcast in secret with its own thoughts about this time. There was a change coming. Two or three days after I had earned the wages just mentioned, my husband found me out. The furniture money was all spent. He made a disturbance at the club. I was only able to quiet him by giving him all the money I could spare for my own necessities. The scandal was brought before the committee. They said, if the circumstance occurred again, they should be obliged to part with me. In a fortnight, the circumstance occurred again. It's useless to dwell on it. They all said they were sorry for me. I lost the place. My husband went back with me to my lodgings. The next morning I caught him taking my purse with the few shillings I had in it out of my trunk which he had broken open. We quarrelled, and he struck me again, this time knocking me down. I went once more to the police court and told my story, to another magistrate this time. My only petition was to have my husband kept away from me. "'I don't want to be a burden on others,' I says. "'I don't want to do anything but what's right. "'I don't even complain of having been very cruelly used. "'All I asked is to be led to earn an honest living. "'Will the law protect me in the effort to do that?' "'The answer in substance was that the law might protect me, "'provided I had money to spend in asking some higher court to grant me a separation. "'After allowing my husband to rob me openly of the only property I possessed, namely my furniture, the law turned round on me when I called upon it in my distress and held out its hand to be paid. I had just three and sixpence left in the world, and the prospect if I earned more of my husband coming with permission of the law and taking it away from me. There was only one chance, namely to get time to turn round in and to escape him again. I got a month's freedom from him by charging him with knocking me down. The magistrate happening to be young and new to this business, sent him to prison instead of fining him. This gave me time to get a character from the club as well as a special testimonial from good Mr. Babchild. With the help of these I obtained a place in a private family, a place in the country this time. I found myself now in a haven of peace. I was among worthy, kind-hearted people who felt for my distresses and treated me most indulgently indeed through all my troubles i must say i have found one thing hold good in my experience i have observed that people are oftener quick than not to feel a human compassion for others in distress also that they mostly see plain enough what's hard and cruel and unfair on them in the governing of the country which they help to keep going but once ask them to get on from sitting down and grumbling about it to rising up and setting it right and what do you find them as helpless as a flock of sheep. That's what you find them. More than six months passed, and I saved a little money again. One night, just as we were going to bed, there was a loud ring at the bell. The footman answered the door, and I heard my husband's voice in the hall. He had traced me, with the help of a man he knew in the police, and he had come to claim his rights. I offered him all the little money I had to let me be. My good master spoke to him. It was all useless. He was obstinate and savage. If, instead of my running off from him, it had been all the other way, and he had run off from me, something might have been done, as I understood, to protect me. But he stuck to his wife. As long as I could make a farthing, he stuck to his wife. Being married to him, I had no right to have left him. I was bound to go with my husband, there was no escape for me. I bade them good-bye, and I have never forgotten their kindness to me from that day to this. My husband took me back to London. As long as the money lasted, the drinking went on. When it was gone, I was beaten again. Where was the remedy? There was no remedy but to try and escape him once more. Why didn't I have him locked up? What was the good of having him locked up? In a few weeks he would be out of prison, sober and penitent, and promising amendment, and then when the fit took him, there he would be, the same furious savage that he'd been often and often before. My heart got hard and in the hopelessness of it, and dark thoughts beset me mostly at night. About this time I began to say to myself, There's no deliverance from this but in death, his death or mine. Once or twice I went down to the bridges after dark and looked over at the river. No, I wasn't the sort of woman who ends her own wretchedness in that way. Your blood must be in a fever and your head in a flame, at least I fancy so. You must be hurried into it, like, to go and make away with yourself. My troubles never took that effect on me. I always turned cold under them instead of hot. Bad for me, I dare say, but what you are, you are. Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? I got away from him once more and found good employment once more. It don't matter how, and it don't matter where. My story is always the same thing, over and over again. Best get to the end. There was one change, however, this time. My employment was not in a private family. I was also allowed to teach cookery to young women in my leisure hours. What with this, and what with a longer time passing on the present occasion before my husband found me out, I was as comfortably off as in my position I could hope to be. When my work was done, I went away at night to sleep in a lodging of my own. It was only a bedroom, and I furnished it myself, partly for the sake of economy the rent being not half as much as for a furnished room, and partly for the sake of cleanliness. Through all my troubles I always liked things neat about me, neat and shapely and good. Well, it's needless to say how it ended. He found me out again, this time by a chance meeting with me in the street. He was in rags and half-starved, but that didn't matter now. All he had to do was to put his hand into my pocket and take what he wanted, There is no limit in England to what a bad husband may do as long as he sticks to his wife. On the present occasion he was cunning enough to see that he would be the loser if he disturbed me in my employment. For a while things went on as smoothly as they could. I made a pretence that the work was harder than usual, and I got leave, loathing the sight of him, I honestly own, to sleep at the place where I was employed. This was not for long. The fit took him again, in due course, and he came and made a disturbance as before this was not to be borne by decent people, as before they were sorry to part with me, as before I lost my place. Another woman would have gone mad under it. I fancy it just missed by a hair's breadth maddening me. When I looked at him that night, deep in his drunken sleep, I thought of jail and Sisera. See the book of Judges, chapter 4, verses 17 to 21 it says she took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary so he died she did this deed to deliver her nation from sisera if there had been a hammer and a nail in the room that night i think i should have been jail with this difference that i should have done it to deliver myself With the morning this passed off, for the time, I went and spoke to a lawyer. Most people in my place would have had enough of the law already, but I was one of the sort who drained the cup to the dregs. What I said to him was in substance this. I come to ask your advice about a madman. Mad people, as I understand it, are people who have lost control over their own minds. Sometimes this leads them to entertaining delusions, and sometimes it leads them to committing actions hurtful to others or to themselves. My husband has lost all control over his own craving for strong drink. He requires to be kept from liquor as other madmen require to be kept from attempting their own lives or the lives of those about them. It's a frenzy beyond his own control with him, just as it's a frenzy beyond their own control with them. There are asylums for mad people all over the country at the public disposal on certain conditions. If I fulfill those conditions, Will the law deliver me from the misery of being married to a madman whose madness is drink? No, says the lawyer, the law of England declines to consider an incurable drunkard as a fit object for restraint. The law of England leaves the husbands and wives of such people in a perfectly helpless situation to deal with their own misery as they best can. I made my acknowledgments to the gentleman and left him. The last chance was this chance— And this had failed me. 7. The thought that had once found its way into my mind already now found its way back again, and never altogether left me from that time forth. No deliverance for me but in death, his death or mine. I had it before me night and day, in chapel and out of chapel just the same. I read the story of Jael and Sisera so often that the Bible got to open of itself at that place. The laws of my country, which ought to have protected me as an honest woman, left me helpless. In place of the laws I had no friend near to open my heart to. I was shut up in myself, and I was married to that man. Consider me as a human creature, and say, was this not trying my humanity very hardly. I wrote to good Mr. Babchild, not going into particulars, only telling him I was beset by temptation and begging him to come and help me. He was confined to his bed by illness. He could only write me a letter of good advice. To profit by good advice, people must have a glimpse of happiness to look forward to as a reward for exerting themselves. Religion itself is obliged to hold out a reward, and to say to us poor mortals, Be good, and you shall go to heaven. I had no glimpse of happiness. I was thankful, in a dull sort of way, to good Mr. Babchild, and there it ended. The time had been when a word from my old pastor would have put me in the right way again. I began to feel scared by myself. If the next ill-usage I received from Joel Dethridge found me an unchanged woman, it was borne in strongly on my mind that I should be as likely as not to get my deliverance from him by my own hand. Goaded to it by the fear of this, I humbled myself before my relations for the first time. I wrote to beg their pardon, to own that they had proved to be right in their opinion of my husband, and to entreat them to be friends with me again, "'so far as to let me visit them from time to time. "'My notion was that it might soften my heart "'if I could see the old place and talk the old talk "'and look again at the well-remembered faces. "'I'm almost ashamed to own it, "'but if i had had anything to give, "'I would have parted with it all "'to be allowed to go back into Mother's kitchen "'and cook the Sunday dinner for them once more. "'But this was not to be. "'Not long before my letter was received, Mother had died. "'They laid it all at my door.' She had been ailing for years past, and the doctors had said it was hopeless from the first, but they laid it all at my door. One of my sisters wrote to say that much, in as few words as could possibly suffice for saying it. My father never answered my letter at all. 8. Magistrates and lawyers, relations and friends, endurance of injuries, patience, hope, and honest work. I had tried all these, and tried them vainly. Look round me where I might, the prospect was closed on all sides. At this time my husband had got a little work to do. He came home out of temper one night, and I gave him a warning. Don't try me too far, Joel, for your own sake, was all I said. It was one of his sober days, and, for the first time, a word from me seemed to have an effect on him. He looked hard at me for a minute or so, and then he went and sat down in a corner and held his peace. This was on a Tuesday in the week. On the Saturday he got paid, and the drinking fit took him again. On Friday in the next week I happened to come back late, having had a good stroke of work to do that day, in the way of cooking a public dinner for a tavern-keeper, who knew me. I found my husband gone, and the bedroom stripped of the furniture which I had put into it. For the second time he had robbed me of my own property, and had turned it into money to be spent in drink. I didn't say a word. I stood and looked round the empty room. What was going on in me I hardly knew myself at the time, and can't describe now. All I remember is that, after a little, I turned about to leave the house. I knew the places where my husband was likely to be found, and the devil possessed me to go and find him. The landlady came out into the passage and tried to stop me. She was a bigger and a stronger woman than I was, but I shook her off like a child. Thinking over it now, I believe she was in no condition to put out her strength. The sight of me frightened her. I found him. I said... Well, I said what a woman beside herself with fury would be likely to say. It's needless to tell how it ended. He knocked me down. After that, there is a spot of darkness like in my memory. The next thing I can call to mind is coming back to my senses after some days. Three of my teeth were knocked out. But that was not the worst of it. My head had struck against something and falling and some part of me—a nerve, I think they said—was injured in such a way as to affect my speech. I don't mean that I was downright dumb, I only mean that, all of a sudden, it had become a labour to me to speak. A long word was as serious an obstacle as if I was a child again. They took me to the hospital. When the medical gentleman heard what it was, the medical gentlemen came crowding round me. I appeared to lay hold of their interest, just as a story book lays hold of the interest of other people. The upshot of it was that I might end in being dumb, or I might get my speech again. The chances were about equal. Only two things were needful. One of them was that I should live on good nourishing diet. The other was that I should keep my mind easy. About the diet it was not possible to decide. My getting good nourishing food and drink depended on my getting money to buy the same. As to my mind, there was no difficulty about that. If my husband came back to me, my mind was made up to kill him horrid i am well aware this is horrid nobody else in my place would have ended as wickedly as that all the other women in the world tried as i was would have risen superior to the trial end of section 62